0: We were young until we went, but the books stay the same. Reading, reading the red books.
1: It was a, like a good book segue, and I was like, wanted to talk to you about the book, and then I forgot we were supposed to be recording a podcast.
0: You're just gonna be walking around one day and you'll just be talking in your podcast voice the whole time. And people are gonna be Be like, what are you doing, Morgan? Why are you talking like a weirdo? And you're like, I can't stop. This is a podcast. My life is a podcast.
1: Hello, this is (laughs) Reread.
0: What are we talking about? We are talking about a book. And what a book it is.
1: Indeed.
0: The progenitor. Wait, whose turn is it to introduce? It's mine. Oh, well, you go for it.
1: So, hello, welcome to (laughs) Reread. (laughs) Uh, This is our podcast where we read books from our childhood days, days gone by, and see if we have the same feelings about them, see if we've changed, see how they look in the cold light of adulthood. And today, we are talking about Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte, which my copy calls it uh, a heartbreaking story of wild, obsessive love, of jealousy and retribution, a masterpiece.
0: (laughs) Well, I would call this book a masterpiece, but maybe not necessarily in the way that that quote intends it to be. This is a wild <laughs> fucking right. That's right. <laughs> As I was saying before, this is the book that so many romance novels today aspire to be. There's certainly one very good example of a book that's trying desperately to be Wuthering Heights, which we might talk about at some point on this podcast.
1: Wait, do I know what book this is? Yes, you do. Okay.
0: I am talking about, of course, Twilight. Twilight very much wants to be Wuthering Heights.
1: I mean, Twilight, the third book, Eclipse, uh, is, I don't know if you've heard about this, but like each book after the original Twilight book sort of has like a literary inspiration. Mm. So New Moon is Romeo and Juliet. Eclipse, which is the third book, is Wuthering Heights. And they literally quote Wuthering Heights throughout it. Like, it's a very self-conscious. So yes, Twilight is trying to be Wuthering Heights. Book three is how I know Wuthering Heights, which I I guess is a good segue to say I never read Wuthering Heights as a kid. This is my first read. That's not completely true. (laughs) I picked up uh, a copy in my high school library um, after reading Eclipse. Because I was like, wow, this sounds cool and awesome. Because I was really into Twilight at that point in my life. And got I want to say like three chapters in. Whatever it was, I was still in the first frame narrative. it hadn't gone into the second frame narrative yet. And was like, this isn't what I was expecting. And put it down. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of my exposure to this. So you're really the one that has the, the prior experience that we're responding to.
0: That's true. I gave myself, because I was a bored high school student, I gave myself the mission to read the main book of the three Bronte sisters, and Mm. I was going to be like, I will determine who is in fact the best one of the three. Of course, as a high schooler, I have all sorts of legitimacy in that realm. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so I read, obviously, Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte, Jane Eyre. Charlotte Bronte and the uh,
1: Tenant of Wildfield Hall by Anne. Last
0: one. You can tell by the fact that I don't even remember the title which one was my least favorite, but <laughs> Wuthering Heights was my favorite of the three. And I think that, especially as a high schooler, the surface level aspect of the story. I mean, I suppose if you want to get literary with it, you can, but. There, there is no subtext with any of the characters. <laughs> <laughs> they, they announce <laughs> quite honestly and quite brutally exactly what they're feeling at any given moment. Which, does that make for good writing? Uh, probably not. But is it a lot of fun? I
1: would say it depends <laughs> on the character. It is,
0: that's true, and we'll g- get into that. I do think this book is just so much fun. This is going to be a very strange analogy, but in a lot of ways it reminds me of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia.
1: (laughs) I don't think that's strange at all. I think that's a great analogy. (laughs) Oh,
0: well, thank you. I think in the sense that all the characters are terrible people (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) in one form or another, either they're stupid or evil or both. and. Because they're all the same kind of despicable, you're removed from the horror of what actually happens in the book, and you can just enjoy terrible people being terrible to each other. That's something I like, especially with these kind of romance novels. I have no skin in the game. I'm never thinking to myself, Mm. oh, this makes no sense why this nice narrator wants to get with this terrible, terrible person or the kind of (laughs) much flimsier thing of painting the bad boy with the heart of gold kind of thing, which is a shtick I hate. If you're going to do a bad boy, have the guts to make him an (coughs) a**hole the whole time. And boy, oh boy, does Emily Bronte not relent with the character of Heathcliff Heathcliff, it's just the biggest bastard of all. But how did you feel now in your adulthood with <laughs> your expectations perhaps more aligned with what the book actually I, is about?
1: Not going there and thinking it was going to be Twilight Eclipse. It was really interesting first reading. I think, especially because, like, yeah, at this point in my life, I kind of knew, knew some of the bare bones of the story. Mm-hmm. And so. I did, I like knew it was coming essentially but like still managed to be surprised by certain things like I knew it was sort of like a two generation plot mm. I didn't realize how evenly split the book was between the two generations I thought there was more time on the first generation so like that was kind of a surprise and stuff like that but um the book was in this kind of difficult position with me where I've heard all of the best lines from Wuthering Heights before and I associate them with twilight <laughs> So when I read them, like these very impactful, beautiful lines. Oh, no. I would read them and be like, oh, yeah, that's what Edward says to Bella in this part of Eclipse. <laughs> <laughs> so I do feel like the book was in this very unfair situation in that way. Um, yeah, I think that I, I have very conflicted feelings. I, it's another book that I feel kind of like, I think certain things are really cool about it. Mm-hmm. But I I almost feel like this book is doing two different things, and I wanted it to be one or the other. And I also have a lot of thoughts about the various framing devices and their levels of effectiveness.
0: Yes, that's a mess. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So I think that, like, yeah, it's in this weird place where, like, I, too, love the, like, melodrama. I love the, like, toxic romance. Like, yes, please sign me the f*** <laughs> up. That's my jam. I love seeing Kathy and Heathcliff just be little disasters at each other. But yeah, I think that they're just, you know, I feel like it either needed to be like more of that, or it really needed to be focused more on this idea of like the cycle of revenge. Mm. And I think the book kind of wanted to be both like a romance and a revenge story Mm -hmm. in this way that didn't quite mesh together in the end.
0: I suppose before we get into the summary and all of that, we should also provide The context for Emily Bronte herself, because this is her only book. I guess technically there was a poetry book that she and her sisters put out, but who cares? This is her (laughs) only book. She died very young from consumption.
1: Oh yeah, all the Bronte's died young. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I think Emily died, and then like six months later, Anne Bronte died. Mm -hmm. It's really tragic story. (laughs) I don't know if your version includes This preface that was written by Charlotte Bronte. Oh, my God. It is it is something else. It really just goes along with the the trashiness of this entire novel, because her (laughs) sister, she is pretty brutal in her assessment of Wuthering Heights. To sum it up very quickly, she basically said, yeah, there was potential there, but this is a very flawed book. (laughs) <laughs> and it's like
1: I opened up to you and you've oh judged God, me. Okay. You're an asshole.
0: Saying that about her dead sister's book, you know that she means it. But also it's <laughs> it kind of sounds like Charlotte Bronte was a bit of a mean person in life. <laughs> But
1: <laughs> not to like add to the Charlotte Bronte Fuel, because I, I'm not going to say whether or not she was mean in life, but she did the same thing for Tenet of Wildfell Hall. Mm. She wrote a preface <laughs> later on that was like, Anne was really trying her hardest, but she was also like, because Tenet of Wildfell Hall, for like everyone who hasn't read it, which is probably most people, yeah, is like a lot about alcoholism and spousal abuse. <laughs> It's, like, a more realistic book than either uh, *Wuthering Heights or Jane Eyre. It, kind of more disturbing for its realism. But yeah, so Charlotte wrote some sort of preface or other thing to go along with it. It was basically, like, Anne was the purest soul ever, but she was, like, deeply, like, affected. They had a brother, I think, who, like, died of alcoholism or something. She was deeply traumatized by this, and that's... She couldn't help putting this darkness into her writing, blah, blah, blah. And kind of apologizing for the like the very shocking frankness of Tent of Wildfell Hall. So I think it's so funny she did the same thing for Wuthering uh, Nights. She was like, my sister is not as good as me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, they are dead. It's not like they can rebut her or anything. So, I mean, it, she kind of does have a point. The, the sad part is that you can definitely see... Emily Bronte is one hell of a writer. Hmm. I mean, yes, none of this book is subtle, but (laughs) it's fantastically written. There are lines Mm -hmm. that are so f***ing good. It's a god fine wine. And it is a shame that she died young because it would have been interesting to see if uh, she would have developed as a writer or if she just would have kept producing trash for the rest of her life. Which either way would have been fantastic because I enjoyed Wuthering Heights and I definitely would have read a sequel to Wuthering Heights. Anyway, summary time?
1: <laughs> I guess so. I feel like this is going to be a pretty short summary.
0: For once in our god <laughs> lives, this is a very straightforward book.
1: Yeah. I mean, like it takes a lot of time to get there. My book is like 442 pages long. In terms of actual plot points, I feel like I can... To do this relatively quickly. Yeah. Okay. So we open on a frame narrative. I'm just going to like put that out. Mm. It's a frame narrative. Uh huh. This guy named uh, Lockwood has uh, decided to leave society because he like had a crush on a girl and then she like dared to return it. (laughs) And he's like, no, I just wanted to love you from afar. Stop that. So he's decided to flee society and he's moved into this, this house that's being let by this other guy and he's like all right i'm gonna go visit this other guy just to be like introduce myself it's polite so he's staying at the grange wow uh the Thrushcross grange and the other house um where his landlord is at is weathering heights and his landlord well that's a that's a Freudian slip. lord is one mr heathcliff so he goes over there to introduce himself and like Notices it's kind of weird there, but (laughs) even though Keith Cliff seems kind of like grumpy and taciturn, this guy, despite saying that he's like a very antisocial person, is a (laughs) deeply social person. (laughs) He's a really unreliable narrator. I'm going to put that out there. So he's like, I'm going to go visit him again the next day. And he does. And that's when he meets like kind of the rest of the crew at Weathering Heights, which is like there's a servant, Joseph, who speaks in a written out accent that is pretty much impossible to read. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There's like a woman who like takes care of the house like a housekeeper essentially she's not important, and then there are two young people that live with uh Heathcliff. One is uh Mrs. Heathcliff, not to the current owner but to his dead son, and the other is uh Hareton Earnshaw, who is her cousin. yes, <laughs> I mean that's correct, I know I'm just like the the relationships are complicated. He's not technically related to Heathcliff at all,
0: yes, he is the son, this is going to get confusing. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, Harriton is the son of the brother of Mrs. Heathcliff's mom.
1: Yes. Well, we'll get more into this as we continue with the summary. The point is, they're cousins. He's not technically related to Heathcliff. So anyhow, uh, our narrator goes there again, and surprise, surprise, everyone there is a grump and doesn't really want him around. It's like When Heathcliff was being taciturn and grumpy, it was because he didn't want people around. (laughs) And, like, there's a storm out and he ends up having to stay the night. And they're all, like, very unhappy about him staying the night. Mm. And he gets put in this room. The housekeeper's like, I'm not technically supposed to put anyone in this room, but there's nowhere else for you to sleep. So, And he stumbles upon some notebooks there from one Catherine Earnshaw from when she's a child, and he reads a little bit of them, and then he has terrible nightmares about a woman at the windows, like, screaming to be let in, and wakes up all in a frenzy, wakes up Heathcliff, tells Heathcliff about the thing, and then Heathcliff gets, like, very disturbed and upset and, like, opens the windows and starts calling for someone to get, ooh, be let in. After this evening, our guy's like, all right, I'm getting home no matter what. These people are crazy. I'm out. Uh, so he goes home through all of, like, the cold, and, uh, of course, this is a Victorian novel. Comes down with a horrible illness, a horrible illness, and is laid up in bed. So he decides to ask his housekeeper <laughs> to uh. tell him about his landlord. Like, what's going on there? Because he's like, they were all so weird. And she's like, well, I'm not a gossip, but I guess I will tell you the entire saga.
0: <laughs> he also does browbeat her at one point yes. in telling the story. She's like, I have to go to bed. It's like one in the morning. And he's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> you keep telling yeah. the story.
1: <laughs> he's so, like, needy about it. Like, uh, God, he's such a b- I hate him.
0: Indeed. <laughs>
1: But, (laughs) I mean, again, like you said, there are, like, no people in this story that are good people. They're just people that, like, are, like, enjoyable, hateable people, and then they're just, like, irritatingly hateable people, and I would say he falls in the latter category. Yes. But luckily, we spend barely any time with him. So, Mrs. Dean, otherwise known as Ellen Dean, or Nellie, launches into her whole story and thus begins, really, the true tale of Wuthering Heights about the... Earnshaw's and the Lintons and Heathcliff. So basically way back in the day, the Wuthering Heights was owned by the Earnshaw family and they had, uh, there was a dad and there were two kids. Wow. I love how like their names have left me so quickly. What is the? the- it's
0: Hindley. H-I-N-D-L-E-Y. Yes. Very strange name. And of course, Catherine.
1: Uh, Yes, there's the eldest son, Hindley, and uh, his sister, Catherine. And one day, their dad brings home this child (laughs) of dubious origin (laughs) named Heathcliff.
0: He's so fucking funny. He's just like, I'm going to walk to London today, but it's fucking 60 miles away. And then he walks there, and then he comes back, and he has a child in tone it's like what the is this Uh, this book is brilliant
1: uh, (laughs) Oh, and I should mention the reason why Ellen Dean is there to see all these things is that she essentially her mom helped take care of Hindley when Hindley was a baby and therefore she was raised kind of alongside him and now she kind of helps out around the household helps take care of the children etc so Mr. Earnshaw brings home this kid Heathcliff and is like he's staying with us now Make sure he's educated, taken care of, etc. really treats him like one of his own children, which Hindley hates. Hindley hates Heathcliff and hates everything about him. But Catherine and Heathcliff end up being close friends and they're both kind of terrors. <laughs> Heathcliff is always angry and sullen and demanding of things. Catherine is self-absorbed and headstrong and proud, and, like, they're just, they're not nice kids, and they're kind of let roam free, generally, and Mr. Earnshaw, like, dotes on Heathcliff, like, he really favors him above his own children. It's not, it's not a good situation, but he ends up dying, and he does, like, make provisions, essentially, to make sure Heathcliff doesn't get turned out, but when Henley takes over, and Henley, by this point, has, like, gone away to school, and got married, and like comes back with a wife. By the time that happens, like Hindley's able to sort of push Heathcliff out of his former spot and make him into more of like a servant. And it is, is it around this time or a little before that where one of um Catherine and Heathcliff's little adventures has them going down to the Grange and trying to spy on the people there? And um so at the Grange are the Lintons, there's Mr. and Mrs. Linton, and then there's their children Edgar and Isabel. Isabella? Wow. I've truly forgotten their names as quickly as possible. (laughs) I literally finished this book today and I've already been like, well, they're gone. (laughs) But yeah, so Edgar and Isabella. And so they're spying on them through the window when Catherine is attacked by some dogs. (laughs) She ends up getting taken in to recuperate from her dog bites and ends up for some reason having to stay down at the Grange for like weeks No clue why. Heathcliff, they think Heathcliff is like a little devil and they send him back because they're like, what is this thing? And I, I should mention here that there's a lot of racial coding to do with Heathcliff in a really not great way.
0: They call him a gypsy. They refer multiple times to his darker skin. It's ambiguous what exactly his origins are, but he's definitely not a pretty white boy.
1: Right. It's very ambiguous whether he's actually Romani or just has darker skin. But yes, or the just term even they use just for darker
0: them features is
1: yeah. yeah. Jinx, buy me a coke. Ooh. I don't know. He's got very dark hair, dark eyes. It's that is a, like a big thing influencing how people feel about him in the book, as well as the fact that he's a terror. So anyhow, they are separated for a number of weeks as Catherine is recuperating from these horrible dog bites. <laughs> When she returns, she's kind of been like ladyified by her time there. Mm-hmm. And
0: <laughs> I like that as a term ladyified.
1: Yeah, it's like the best way I can put it. She's like learned manners. Yeah. Uh, she's become uh, quote unquote civilized. So she comes back, and at first, it seems like maybe this has driven a reconcilable wedge between the two of them, but they manage to remain friends. But Catherine does end up sort of juggling her friendship with the Linton siblings with her friendship with Heathcliff. She basically puts on two different personas to be with them. Anyhow, time goes on and uh Edgar Linton like falls in love with Cathy, wants to marry her and she's like, I guess I will. <laughs> but also I'm in love with Heathcliff <laughs> and she has this whole discussion with Uh Nellie where like she's talking about this and it's it's a great it has some of the great lines in the book but like (laughs) Ellen Dean knows that Heathcliff's just standing there and like lets him stand through this entire conversation Kathy's literally like it would degrade me to marry Heathcliff as he is now (laughs) but like our souls are made of the same thing it's wild but Heathcliff gets very upset naturally and essentially runs away And Kathy discovers that he's left without, like, giving any word and ends up making herself sick. She goes down to the Lintons, ends up getting married to Edgar, and Heathcliff stays away for a long while. I should also mention that Hindley, who had a wife for a while, his wife was very uh, weak. And when they eventually had a son, Harrington, she passed away shortly thereafter. And he was very attached to her, and after she died, ends up kind of resorting to alcohol and gambling and other unsavory things, and Mrs. Dean ends up taking care of Harrington for the most part, but then when Kathy marries uh, Edgar Linton, she is sent to the Grange to be with Kathy, and Harrington is supposedly sent away to school. Skip some time. (laughs) Couple of years, something like that. And uh, Heathcliff has never returned, but now he has. <laughs> he's back. Wendy, I'm home. And he's got him some money somehow. Indeed. And he's been doing something somehow. And he's refined himself somehow. But he's still Heathcliff.
0: He's also grown up a bit. He's uh, he's really, truly now tall, dark, and handsome at this point.
1: Yeah. Well, handsome, debatably, depending on who's who's looking. But Fair yes. enough. but yeah so he and Kathy are gloriously reunited he decides to stay up at Wuthering Heights which uh, Ellen Dean thinks is really weird because he and Hindley hate each other but Heathcliff decides to stay up there and he comes down to the grange all the time to visit Kathy Mrs. Dean's like oh I'm not sure about this but (laughs) not really much she can do Linton's also kind of like, I hate Heathcliff, but, like, it makes you happy, babe. <laughs> it's all going well enough until Kathy discovers that Isabella has fallen in love with Heathcliff for whatever reason. They're pretty isolated from the world, it sounds like. Yes. And he's, as you have said, tall, dark, and questionably handsome. What options did she have, truly? And there's
0: also, like, some talk about how Isabella thinks... He might be served that kind of stereotypical role of the Byron, the By, Byronic? Byronic? Byronic, 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 Byronic hero, the kind of romantic hero who's a, yes. tough and gruff, but really is a secret softy on the inside.
1: He's misunderstood. Yeah.
0: Which he blatantly says he is not that in front of her.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so basically, Kathy finds out and is like, girl, no, Like I love Heathcliff more than anyone in the world, and he's trash. He's absolutely <laughs> trash. And it was like, you're so cruel, you don't understand. <laughs> and Kathy thinks this whole thing's kind of a riot, ends up telling Heathcliff about it, and he's just like, ew, gross.
0: But also, she's very rich.
1: Well, yeah, and, like, heathcliff has got some some motives going on, which he talks about at various points, in that he hates Linton, he hates Hindley, and he wants to, like, essentially get vengeance on them both. Marrying Linton's sister could get him numerous things he wants here. So, like, you know, when he comes upon uh, Isabel alone, he embraces her. But, yeah, so then... Kathy finds out about this and is very upset about it. It's like Heathcliff, like, what the f***? And then Linton finds out and then Linton and Heathcliff get into a little fight and then Kathy's like super upset. Everyone is just like the most upset. Kathy ends up going into this deep illness over how upset she is about everything (laughs) and Isabella runs away with Heathcliff to get married and like Kathy's illness is so bad that she's just, It's very clear she's never going to recover. When Heathcliff and Isabel come back, Edgar's like, I am never speaking to her again. I hope she has a nice life. Send her her stuff. But, like, we're done. And Heathcliff really wants to see Kathy because that's his his preoccupation always. Ellen Dean, we can get into how she operates in this story, like, when I, whenever I'm saying she's doing something, let, let it be known it is sometimes through her own accord. Sometimes she's being coerced or threatened into things. Mm-hmm. It really varies depending on the scene and what the narrative needs her to do in order to have her in the room so that she can see all these scenes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like she reunites Kathy and Heathcliff and Kathy dies shortly thereafter. Kathy also, like before she dies, does give birth to a girl whose name is. Catherine, who also goes by Kathy, so i also be referring to her as Catherine and Kathy. I'm sorry. The novel did this to me. It's not my fault.
0: <laughs> I'll call her Kathy Jr., if that clears anything up, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think I generally, funnily enough, even though I believe the first one normally goes by Catherine and the second one goes by Kathy, I tend to think of them reversed, and I don't yeah. know where I got that from.
0: Well, because th- Heathcliff refers to Catherine as Kathy, yeah. and then Linton Edgar refers to his daughter Catherine as Kathy too. Yeah, but I agree with you. When I say Kathy, I'm thinking the elder one rather than right. the the daughter.
1: Yeah, Catherine feels the younger to me. So why don't we stick with that and say these are our naming conventions? Older one is Kathy, younger one is Catherine. Sure. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, surely was it. Yes, yeah, shortly after this, Henley dies and it turns out he's like gambled away his entire estate to Heathcliff. And Harrington has just been left to kind of run wild. He's got like no education, no one to care for him. He's just like a feral child essentially.
0: Yeah, he's he's actually illiterate, which is a kind of a plot point, I guess, in this. Yes.
1: And Isabella runs away from Heathcliff because, like, very shortly after marrying him, she realized he was an awful person and didn't love her and only did this for nefarious reasons. She runs away from him. Turns out she's pregnant. She ends up having a kid who she names Linton. Why do they keep doing this to me? <laughs> <laughs> and then oh, god, years go by. Catherine grows up to, or grows older to be a, like, relatively okay child. She's fine. She's got some bad qualities, but she, like, cares about her dad and is overall very obedient, etc. And she has no idea of, like, any of these things. But, like, after 12 years, Isabella dies. So they end up taking in Linton. Only for, like, as soon as he arrives, basically, uh Joseph, Heathcliff's servant, shows up and is like, hey... My master wants his kid. Give me the baby before I stab you in your neck. Because of how, like, child laws worked um, at the time. And honestly, like, still work today, probably. Yeah. They can't really do anything to prevent Heathcliff from taking Linton, so Linton ends up going up to Wuthering Heights. Other than Heathcliff, who just gets (laughs) absconded with. (laughs) Like, truly the wildest plot point is just... uh, That's not true. There's so many wild plot points. But the fact that... Heathcliff is just obtained. It's bizarre.
0: I guess it was a different time. I don't know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I guess there was no one really taking care of all these orphans. And I suppose if he wanted to just take one for himself, like who was going to stop him? Weird, but okay. Yeah, okay. Right. So on her 16th birthday, Kathy ends up going for this ride on her own to like explore and ends up essentially discovering Wuthering Heights. And realizing that her cousin is there and also discovering that Harrington is her cousin because she didn't realize she had another cousin even. Mm -hmm. No one has told her Jack. (laughs) Linton, just to give a quick character sketch on him, is like he looks nice and he's not horrible, but he's very sickly and he's a whiny brat. Yeah. Like the worst sick patient ever. And he's also constantly sick.
0: He would definitely be played by, by uh, Timothy Chalamet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow, your Timothy Chalamet, I know, that has been documented on a number of these podcasts. I- I'm just going to.
0: I'm just telling you, it's something about his face, man. I just, I don't know what it is. I just.
1: It's just biased.
0: Just, yeah. well,
1: But yeah, anyhow, so even though he kind of sucks. She ends up getting very attached to him. But then her father, after discovering that she's had this whole adventure, tells her essentially that Heathcliff's a really bad person. And she, Catherine really believes her father and is like, okay, I I won't ever go up to Wuthering Heights again. But she contrives a way for her and Linton to exchange letters. And so they end up exchanging letters for quite a while. And they get very romantic. And let's all remember, this is the Victorian period. And that's why cousins are getting romantic Mm -hmm. with each other. Yes. Alan Dean discovers this, (sighs) makes the choice not to tell Linton, but makes Kathy stop writing, or makes the choice not to tell Mr. Linton, Edgar, and makes Catherine stop writing to Linton Heathcliff. Uh,
0: And also burns all of the letters, because if you want somebody to stop doing something, The way to do it is by traumatizing them.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh. Whatever.
1: (laughs) But things happen, and also Heathcliff has this master plan where he wants Linton to marry Catherine. Because Edgar doesn't have any other heirs, if he can get Linton to marry Catherine then Linton will be in charge of the Grange and, like, take over that land. And therefore, Heathcliff will essentially have that land. And this is part, again, of Heathcliff's grand revenge scheme. The other part of which is making Harriton... Essentially putting Harriton in the same position that Hindley put him in. So, he tries to have Catherine meet Linton again. Linton's very sick at this point, And so Catherine feels like she has to, like, see him to help him get better. And so they continue meeting, and eventually this is all confessed to Edgar Linton. He's like, okay, you can only, like, see him outside. It can't be at Wuthering Heights. You have to, like, meet. It's all very, like, <sighs> the, like, technicalities involved. I'm like, "This is this good for anyone? Like, really? And Edgar Linton's too, like, sick now. He's also sick, and he is too sick to, like, accompany Catherine on any of these ventures. But when Catherine is able to start meeting with Linton again, he is even worse than he was before, beyond just being like the worst sick patient ever. He is now seems apathetic to her company, but he's also really frightened when she tries to leave. And it's, um I mean, I'm not even saying it's implied. It's like <laughs> right there on the page that Heathcliff has been just tormenting him about how he needs to get Catherine to marry him or horrible things are going to happen to him. So... Eventually, on the second of their meetings, Heathcliff shows up during it, and he and Linton trick Catherine and Ellen Dean into going into Wuthering Heights, where Heathcliff then imprisons them and is like, Catherine, if you don't marry Linton, I won't let you go. And Catherine's very alarmed, because again, her father is dying, and she's very close to him, and she's like, look, I'll do whatever the fuck you want, just like, let me go see my dad, please. I need to be with him when he dies. Heathcliff's like, you got to marry Linton or else you're not leaving. So she's like, fine. So she marries him. And then Heathcliff still doesn't let her go. Ellen Dean manages to get out and go back. And she tries to, like, send people to rescue Catherine. But, like, they're not able to. But Catherine manages to break out on her own. Well, not on her own. She essentially bullies Linton into helping her. (laughs) And I should mention that Linton, as soon as she's, like, married to him, it starts being absolutely horrible to her. Mm -hmm. And it's like... If I was stronger, like I would hit you and do all these things to you, and you have to obey me, blah blah. It's all very toxic, sh**. But she manages to break out and make it back in time for her father to die peacefully in her arms.
0: Let us hear it for our poor dead friend. <laughs>
1: After that, Heathcliff drags her back. Uh, Ellen Dean wants to go with her to be her companion, but Heathcliff's like, "No, you're staying here and taking care of this house. This house is mine now because." of the whole they got married, etc., etc. inheritance. That is essentially how the house came to be letted out to Lockwood. Um, Linton died shortly thereafter, and Heathcliff made him write his will so that everything was left to Heathcliff. So Kathy has nothing. Harrington has nothing. They're trapped up there with Heathcliff. And that's the whole sort of tragic tale that Dean first imparts. Lockwood... <laughs> And by this point, <laughs> Lock- has recovered. Oh, God. And he's like, well, uh-huh. sorry, go.
0: Oh, I was just going to say, Lockwood's takeaways throughout this story are just the funniest mm-hmm. possible because he is so fucking dense. He, he's heard this horrible, horrible story, and he's like, well, I guess I shouldn't marry Catherine then because <laughs> she might be crazy like her mom. And it's like, what the, who the f cares about you, dude? It is so <laughs> obnoxious.
1: <laughs> right, like,
0: <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> Ellen Dean makes, like, one insinuation that maybe he should marry Catherine. She wants to, like, help Catherine get out, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then Lockwood's takeaway is that, like, Cath- Catherine wants to marry him, and Ellen Dean wants them to get married, and therefore, that like, the big takeaway is whether or not he'll marry Catherine. Even though the first time they met, she like was horrible to him. She hated mm-hmm. him. She was like not into him at all. But he was like, Ah, uh, yeah. Maybe that's
0: his type.
1: I mean, true, he did not want that girl to like him back.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but oh uh, yeah. Anyhow, so he's like, I'm gonna leave. I'm done here. I'm 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 tired. So he goes one more time to Wuthering Heights to like essentially let Heathcliff know he's peacing out. And he also carries a letter from uh, Mrs. Dean to Catherine mm-hmm. and observes Catherine and Harrington and a uh, interaction between them. Catherine is making fun of Harrington because Harrington is illiterate and she thinks dumb. And Harrington, like, clearly wants to, like, better himself and please her and is kind of, like, seems interested. But she's constantly, like, laughing at him and mocking him, etc., etc. And then they get into spats. Yeah, so Lockwood leaves. <laughs> <laughs> and then he ends up coming back a little while later because he's like passing through to get to somewhere else. And he's like, oh, I should show up and like basically give his final rent check so that he can just kind of be done with the place. And he runs, he goes to stay at his place, but he didn't tell anyone he was coming. So no one at the Grange is ready for him. So he ends up, uh, while they're trying to get things ready for him, going up to Wuthering Heights to give that final check to Heathcliff. And he discovers Catherine and Harrington there in a much different situation than he last saw them. Very cozy. She's teaching him to read. He's all like done up like a proper gentleman. And he's trying to bargain for like kisses. He's like, if I, if I read this, will you kiss me? <laughs> She's like, oh, read it first. Uh. But like very lovey-dovey. Also cousins. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's important to remember. <laughs> um, and he also, he's like, I'm not going to interrupt their, like, being lovebirds at each other. So he goes around and finds Dean in the kitchen. And That's
0: what he says, but I think the real reason he's like, oh, fuck, I could have married Catherine myself.
1: I mean, I think he says something along those lines, but anyhow, he, like, finds Mrs. Dean and she tells him basically that Heathcliff is dead. Dead? How? When? The, like, circumstances of his death are kind of, like, weird. He, you know, was kind of dead set on keeping Catherine and Harrington apart. He didn't want them to be allies. But, like, one day Catherine decided to sort of repent for being such a <coughs> pole to Harrington. And uh, they made up and became friends and started liking each other. And, like, Heathcliff noticed this, but, like, really wasn't able to bring himself to stop it. Partially, it's insinuated because they both... Carrington looks quite a bit like Kathy. Um, Catherine has like her eyes. There's a m- multiple moments in this section where it talks about like Heathcliff looking at them and them looking very Kathy-ish. And so there's this one moment where he like clearly just decides he's not gonna interfere. And then after that, he starts acting very strange, like he's seeing something. This is actually not on the page, I think, but like it's pretty obvious he's seeing C- Kathy. Like that's, that it's, it's not hard to like. <laughs> Put those clues together, and it makes him animated and excited, and he ends up not eating for four days and dying, and they bury him next to Kathy, and the Wuthering Heights in the Grange go to Kathy and Harrington, who are going to get married, and Mrs. Dean's like, I'm very glad you didn't marry Catherine <laughs> Lockwood. <laughs> the end.
0: Everyone sees that Lockwood sucks. Which is remarkable, because they've, they've literally all have lived with Heathcliff. <laughs> and nonetheless, they're like, thank God we did not have to deal with Lockwood.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, beautiful. One thing I do want to highlight, probably the wildest detail in this whole book that you left out, and it comes near the end, where... Heathcliff, for whatever reason, just starts talking to to Ellen Dean (laughs) and reveals that not once, but twice, he has unburied Kathy's body.
1: I know I left it out. I just literally <laughs> couldn't think of a good place to, like, put it in. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I know we're going to talk about it, so, like... Oh, my God. But, yes. It's And he, like, amazing. specifically bribes the people at the cemetery <laughs> so that he'll be buried, like, ne- like yeah. right next to her.
0: And, they- and he also has this, like, scheme where they're going to break open the sides of Kathy's and... Heathcliff's coffin, so like right. their bones will mingle together or something like that.
1: Right. Ed- Edgar- and Edgar on her other yes, side will Edgar- have like a barrier.
0: <laughs> Edgar's is, is buried there too, so it's it is the strangest. It's a very, um, but the gri- the best part it it doesn't even end there because the second time Heathcliff is unburying. Kathy's body he's like struggling to open the coffin in order to cuddle with her when suddenly he feels like a presence and he is convinced that it was Kathy's ghost (laughs) (laughs) and so he's like spent the rest of his life seeking out Kathy's ghost
1: who he then fine
0: Just he he just loves her that much. This it's true love. What can I say?
1: Yeah. Uh and I suppose another thing I forgot to mention mm. is that now people say that they've seen Heathcliff and Kathy walking the moors together, so they might be ghosts.
0: But there is a cool to to that relationship as a whole, where there is something that feels very mythical about it. Mm very much larger than life because they are absolutely insane people yeah. (laughs) and their passion is so extreme and Mm -hmm. so volatile but it's also weirdly connected to the moors which is where they live to to the natural surroundings and Moors, I suppose, are very mystical kind of places, Mm -hmm. strange creatures lurking about, Grendel and and such. A lot of their relationship fits into that kind of dynamic, so it's very fitting that their ghosts would be seen around the Moors. Regardless of, even if it's true, it does add to the kind of legend of Heathcliff and Kathy, that they are so connected to these lands. There's this great, yeah. this great line near the end that Heathcliff has where Ellen Dean says something like, basically, why don't you just move on, dude? Which is very reasonable. <laughs> Kathy's been dead for a while now at this point. And Heathcliff is like, no. And part of the reason is because he says, how's it go? For what is not connected with her to me, the entire world is a dreadful collection of memoranda that She did exist and that I have lost her.
1: Ah, oh, yeah. Ah,
0: oh, it's a beautiful line, but it also feels very fitting that this the sense of the spirit because it this book really does feel haunting in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Literally, there's talks of ghosts and Lockwood <laughs> dreams Kathy's ghosts showing up at the window, but there's also just this sense of something haunting the land and so. To me, it was a very satisfying conclusion to this <laughs> very toxic relationship. They are, in a sense, united in the Moors themselves as spirits of some kind, or even if they're not spirits, they, they have become a part of the moors, and it's beautiful in its own way <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, like as someone who really enjoys reading about like really toxic ridiculously codependent relationships. Truly, yeah, the achievement of Wuthering Heights in a lot of ways is that Kathy and Heathcliff's relationship, which honestly doesn't have that much time on the page where you're actually seeing the two of them together. Mm -hmm. If you actually look at the percentage of the book where you're seeing the two of them together, it is relatively small. But, like, really, Emily Bronte is able to sell that they truly are... That great line of Kathy's where she's like, whatever souls are made of, his and mine are the same. It's like, you really buy that. And, like, there's kind of a horror in that, like, it seems like they really were meant to be these kind of, like, wild, feral children roaming the moors together. And when Kathy goes and stays at the Linton's for the first time and comes back refined, as you said, and has all sort of these trappings of what we think of as civilization. There's a kind of horror of transformation in that, like, that she's been transformed from this kind of, like, essential natural being into a woman. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's really interesting. And, like, I don't know where I fall on this because, like, there's this way in which, like, the horror of the second part of the book is that, like, Harrington, we're told multiple times, has a lot of, like, positive traits. It's just that, like, he hasn't been able to develop them and he's been neglected. And so, therefore, him learning to read is this really positive, good thing. But on the other hand, Heathcliff and Kathy feel like they should not have entered civilization. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so many of their problems are from the fact that they weren't left to just be feral children together Mm. on the moors. Right. And so, there's, like, this weird thing where the first half of the book is, like, really telling the story. Kind of, yeah, the horrors that civilization wreaks upon people. And the second half is about the horrors of people just being left neglected. So I don't fully, uh, uh, like, I don't think the book has a consistent moral other than, like, maybe people should be where they want to be. (laughs) But um, I just did think that was really interesting. Because, like, yeah, when you were talking about, like, them, you know, their ghosts roaming the more, I was like, yes, they have returned to where they were always meant to be. That is Mm -hmm. where... I don't know, thinking about Heathcliff as this like semi supernatural mystical character creature, which both like is and isn't validated by the story in that he's kind of like a, like a fairy child and then he just, he's like a changeling. He kind of just shows up mm. and then everything falls apart around him kind of because he showed up. And there's even this moment towards the end where Ellen Jean wonders if he's like a vampire or something. (laughs) It's pretty funny. Um,
0: Yes. Oh, he's called a ghoul at a couple of points. And listeners, if you remember my affinity for that word, oh, baby, was I happy.
1: (laughs) But yeah, I think that there's something like semi supernatural mystical about him, which um, if anyone's a big Jane Eyre person is interesting if you think about the ways in which. Jane Eyre is also referred to, like, the orphan figure Mm -hmm. tends to get in Victorian novels this sort of supernatural quality ascribed to them. There's something kind of Victorian society, Victorian novels have this big focus on the family, and therefore there's something very unnatural about the figure of the orphan. Mm. And certainly Jane's supernaturality gets kind of more romanticized, especially by Rochester, whereas Heathcliff gets demonized. But I, I did think that was really interesting, thinking about like Heathcliff as this this character that was like both very like as you said connected to the more as this very like yeah supernatural mystical space, and also as the figure of the orphan, the changeling who comes in and throws everything into chaos.
0: Right. I mean, this is all incredibly interesting. But to get back to to your point about how, despite the limited space in this book that kathy and heathcliff actually spend together i would also add to that that when you do see them together on the page it's (laughs) they're usually fighting and (laughs) they are oh they do not hold their punches back they are brutal (laughs) with each other but i do think that the best lines in this book are when they're talking about each other Mm -hmm. there's like The famous passage with Kathy, where she says, I am Heathcliff. Let me see if I can find that.
1: Yeah, there's a Heathcliff line, too, um, which I only remember because it's in Twilight. But it's somewhere he's like, I cannot live without my life. I cannot live without my soul. Mm. Something like that. Very dramatic.
0: Yeah. Okay, so at one point, Kathy says this regarding Heathcliff. I cannot express it, but surely you and everybody have a notion that there is or should be an existence of yours beyond you. What were the use of my creation if I were entirely contained here? My great miseries in this world have been Heathcliff's miseries, and I watched and felt each from the beginning. My great thought in living is himself. If all else perished and he remained, I should still continue to be. And if all else remained and he were annihilated, the universe would turn to a mighty stranger. So good. Oh, it's not even done. It just keeps going. It's so good. I should not seem a part of it. My love for Linton is like the foliage in the woods. Time will change it, I'm well aware, as winter changes the trees. My love for Heathcliff resembles the eternal rocks beneath, a source of little visible delight, but necessary. Nellie, I am Heathcliff. He's always, always in my mind, not as a pleasure any more than I am always a pleasure to myself, but as my own being. My God. So good. Again, to be clear, everything about this relationship is toxic. These people are (laughs) way too involved in their own passion. None (laughs) of this is healthy. But you can't help but get swept up into it. On the one hand, they're just so f***ing eloquent that you're just like, oh my god, that sounds beautiful. But you can tell they believe so wholeheartedly in their passion that, you know, when there's, there's a moment where Heathcliff is like, Kathy is dying, and Heathcliff is basically like, you can't die, but if you do die you are not allowed to go in peace. You must haunt me for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. Which is like, okay, but he says it with such conviction that you're just like, you know what? In the terms of uh, the fantasy of romance, there is kind of this sick appeal to the idea that someone loves you so much that they mm. would rather be haunted by you than spend a single day without you god i could i feel like we could just read off quote after quote
1: there's something about and i think this is why we love fiction right it's like mm-hmm. being able to indulge in these moments with the excess of it <laughs> yes it's so excessive <laughs> they're ridiculous but it's like really the romantic fantasy of that is really appealing. And like, it appeals especially so much because you really feel how much they deserve each other. <laughs> and I say that in most, yeah. like, both a positive and a negative sense. They are two really fucked up people and they are the only people for each other. And I think that you see Kathy with Linton a decent bit and he's fine. Like Linton, Edgar Linton. He's
0: a nice guy.
1: He's a nice guy. And like, you know, Kathy with him, <laughs> essentially, it feels like Kathy and, and you know, Ellen Deed at numerous points and remarks on something like this. Mm. Kathy is not her full self with him. Like, she feels like she has to, like, she's kind of more muted. And it's with Heathcliff that she's really her full, like, <laughs> horrible self. And so as much as, like, the relationship between Kathy and Edgar Linton is so much healthier in many ways, you can't help but feeling like she's deprived of something Mm -hmm. because she's not with Heathcliff. And like the tragedy of, and like, I mean, she's a horrible person for even saying this (laughs) in the first place. The tragedy of when she's like, it would degrade me to marry Heathcliff right now because like in the eyes of society, essentially Heathcliff was like at that point, just like a servant. And he was also like not very literate and et cetera, et cetera. And so she's like, but but I don't want to marry uh, a yeah she she's she digs her own grave in so many senses, <laughs> but like,
0: <laughs> oh, that's good
1: there is something very, very tragic about the the fact that like they have this all consuming epic romance. there's another point where like she's getting on Heathcliff about the whole Isabella situation. Heathcliff's essentially like if. You actually wanted me to marry Isabella. I'd slit my own throat. They like know each other so well mm. and like have this understanding. Like even when she's married, it's just.
0: <sighs> I was gonna say that I I think that's another thing that this book does so well and how it's so effective in creating the impression of the relationship without mm. actually showing it. You have all these lines with. Kathy talking about how she's not complete without Heathcliff and all these sort of things that are implied about her own relationship with Edgar. Sorry, I'm I'm hesitating on these names. It's just impossible to keep track of. But uh Well,
1: cuz they keep using the same
0: names
1: over and over again. I want to call him Linton, but Linton is the other one later.
0: I know. But you see these moments that then get mirrored by the other character. In this case, Heathcliff, which this is one of my other favorite lines because the bombacity of it is so wonderful. So this is after Kathy has gone sick and Heathcliff is like, I'm going to see her. And Ellen is like, no, you're not. You're going to upset her. Let her rest in peace. She has nearly forgotten you. And Heathcliff is like, oh. Are you serious? And he says, You know as well as I do that for every thought she spends on Linton, she spends a thousand on me. Uh, Let's see. Wait, is this the line? I think I'm looking for the same line. Okay, no, this is. He goes on, and then the next paragraph he continues, Yet I was a fool to fancy for a moment that she valued Edgar Linton's attachment more than mine. If he loved with all the powers, Mm. "'of his puny being. "'He couldn't love as much in 80 years "'as I could in a day. "'And Catherine has a heart as deep as I have. "'The sea could be as readily contained in that horse-trow "'as her whole affection be monopolized by him. <laughs> "'He is scarcely a degree dearer to her "'than her dog or her horse. "'It is not in him to be loved like me.' How can she love in him what he has not? Yeah.
1: Oh, wait, there's another there's another line in there somewhere that I've been searching for this whole time. Maybe you can help me find it.
0: There's a line before that that goes two words would comprehend my future death and hell. Existence after losing her would be hell.
1: Ah, oh, that one's also good. <laughs> Oh, God, what is the in line?
0: Oh, where he would, like, back off?
1: Yeah, yeah. I just get lost in his speech. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes, yes, yes. And there you see the distinction between our feelings. Had he been in my place and I in his, though I hated him with the hatred that turned my life to gall, I never would have raised a hand against him. You may look incredulous if you please. I never would have banished him from her society as long as she desired his. The moment her regard ceased, I would have torn his heart out and drank his blood. But till then, if you don't believe me, you don't know me. Till then, I would have died by inches before I touched a single hair of his head. Ugh. I did know that line from Twilight, and it's very appropriate to Twilight, but it's, it was even more spectacular here. <laughs> That's so bad.
0: Of course, it makes sense that Edward, a vampire, would drink blood. <laughs> but the thing is, I believe every single god <laughs> word Heathcliff is saying here. Oh, yeah. Catch part two next week on Reread. See you
1: then.